0: Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Fine Pairs Taplines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. An insult to injury. You know what that is, Taplines listener. Salt in the wound, twist of the knife. We've all been on the receiving end of one of those at some point in our lives. And- Maybe on the giving end, too, if we're being honest. This isn't a podcast about emotional growth or personal accountability. We're talking beer, baby. And today, in particular, we're talking about a gnarly bit of macro brewer on micro brewer taunting that took place midway through last decade on the biggest stage imaginable. In January 2015, Anheuser-Busch InBev announced it would acquire a lesion brewing company well-respected 60,000-barrel-ish craft brewery based in Seattle. Just a month later, in February 2015, Elysian co-founder Dick Cantwell, who dutifully brought ABI's initial solicitation to his more sale-ready co-founders, despite hating the idea personally, found himself watching the Super Bowl with a bunch of fellow Elysian brewers and friends. In the end, the hometown Seahawks would lose to the New England Patriots, but by then, Cantwell and Co. had long since stopped caring. See, in the third quarter, Budweiser aired an incendiary ad called Brewed the Hard Way that punched down at the entire craft brewing industry in general and Elysian, the firm ABI had literally just bought, in particular. Ain't that a kick in the head? Today on Taplines, we're joined by Dick Cantwell himself to take us back to that pivotal moment when ABI, midway through what would be a decade-long acquisition spree that it's just now unwinding, clowned on a segment it was simultaneously buying its way into. To some, it was just light-hearted, rivalrous fun, but to others, it was the world's biggest brewery showing its true disdain for craft beer with some classic corporate ratfuckery. Now you're going to hear what that moment was for the craft brewing pioneer at the center of it all. It's Elysian Brewing co-founder Dick Cantwell. It's Budweiser's Brewed the Hard Way backhand. It's ABI's mask off, mud-slinging Super Bowl moment, and it's all right here, right now, on Vine Pair's Taplines. We have climbed the mountain of technological difficulties. We have battled challenges across time in space. We have prevailed. Taplines listener, we have for you today a guest, uh, Nam Perel. Uh, Dick Cantwell is joining the Taplines show. Uh, Dick, thank you so much for being
1: here. Sure, thanks for the invitation.
0: <laughs> and I'm glad we got we finally got a chance to do this. Yeah. Uh, Dick, you're joining us from the East Coast, although most of what we'll be discussing today took place on the West Coast. Um, where, where are you calling in from, Dick?
1: Uh, I'm visiting my daughter, her husband, and our new grandson in Brooklyn.
0: Nice, congratulations! And uh, for those Taplines listeners who are not up on their recent craft brewing history, uh, Dick Cantwell, of course, the co-founder of Elysian Brewing Company, a, uh, a, a craft brewery in Seattle, Washington, that you know I think was a pioneering firm in many regards, and uh, and was sold in 2015 to Anheuser Busch InBev. Um, and what we'll be here talking about today with Dick is, of course, some of that sale and whatever, but and uh, sort of how it unfolded and, and what happened thereafter, but specifically a, a pivotal moment or a pivotal piece of a, a media artifact, maybe is a, is a way to put it, that was very much of its era in 2015. Um, I'm talking about the Budweiser commercial that may be familiar to, to listeners, um, somewhat notorious in the scene, uh, called "Brewed the Hard Way. And we'll be getting into a little bit more about that advertisement and sort of how it crystallized a new, mm, I think, more adversarial position that the world's biggest macro brewer was taking towards uh, this, this at the time, burgeoning craft brewing industry, even as it was moving uh, to acquire a lot of those, those very same craft brewers. We're going to get into all of that, Dick, uh, but before we do... Um, maybe for those, those listeners who aren't as familiar with Elysian Brewing Company, uh, and, and are curious to know a little bit about this, this firm that, you know, held such a, and continues to, to some extent, hold, hold such a big sort of place in craft brewing history. For, for those listeners, can you, can you give us the quick and dirty on how Elysian came to be and, and, and your role in it?
1: Sure. Well, I moved to, uh, the Seattle area in 1990, having started home brewing, gosh, not more than a year and a half before that when I was living in the Boston area. Um, and I, I got a job. I took a mixed six-pack of my beers around to every brewery in town. And I actually was offered two jobs on the basis of that, took one of them. And uh, over the next uh, several years, I worked at three different breweries in Seattle. Mm. And then uh, along the way, got together with my former partners and uh, put together a business plan, raised some money, and started Elysian in 1996. We started as a single brew pub on Capitol Hill with a 20-barrel brew house, which was kind of crazily large for the time, for Mm. just a pub. And then over the next uh, several years, we opened a few other locations. So... uh, and then ultimately, we opened a production brewery in the Georgetown neighborhood in Seattle. So at, a certain, at, at one point, we had five different locations, four of which had breweries in them of varying sizes. So what that allowed us to do was be very, very flexible about the numbers of beers that we could have at any given time, uh, have different beers available in each location, be responsive to the neighborhood. And I feel like a lot of what we do, did was just obvious. But you know, I think uh, you know, a lot of people look to us as an example um
0: well now it's obvious I mean at the time (laughs) there was not as much of a template for it right like looking back on it obviously like it seems like the logical move but I I was curious like who were the major players in Seattle at that time?
1: Well, of course, you know, Red Hook, you know, we used to refer to the small breweries and Red Hook as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> um, you know, because Red Red Hook was so much bigger than the rest of us. Sure. And then Pyramid came along, they got fairly large. And so it was Pyramid and Red Hook as the big players. And then over time, of course, there were dozens, uh, many, many others. And, you know, Seattle was one of one of the original, you know, along with Colorado and Northern California, mm-hmm. a couple other places, it was... Portland, oh, yeah, I can't forget Portland, though. You know, I do reserve the right to make fun of it. <laughs> um, but, you know, all those areas were real hotbeds. And, you know, Elysian, you know, we I, I was there for nearly 20 years before the sale. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was most of my career.
0: So, Dick, when you first co-founded Elysian, 1996, uh, obviously, you know, as you've described, Seattle scene is a little bit more advanced than other parts of the country. But still, I mean, we're talking about Early days for, you know, craft brewing as a, as an industry, as a movement in this country. Um, I think that was right kind of at that peak in 1996, probably late 90s or whatever, before there was a little bit of a downturn in the, in the early aughts or whatever. There's a little bit of a slump there,
1: right? There was. I mean, a lot of that coincided with the dot com bust sure. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, people thought that it was getting super crowded and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Little did they know. You know, <laughs> we've been hearing that all along. And we've also been hearing prognostications of the imminent demise of the craft brewing industry. And while sure. Things have gotten difficult over the last several years with proliferation and with various you know, competitions from other beverages and all that stuff. It's it's still cranking along.
0: Yeah, no, you're right about that. How much of that, like, resonates with what you were hearing back in 1996? Like, if you compare the sort of rhetoric and, and hand-wringing about where the craft brewing industry now is versus where it was, you know, in the mid to late 90s, like, are there parallels that you see? In other words, like, you've been around the block a few times. Like, how how much do you Do you sort of view this as new critiques or concerns versus kind of the old thing sort of rehashed over and over again?
1: Well, there are certainly some new factors. And, you know, with the various other beverages that have come to challenge beer, you know, I'm staying in a hotel right now and you open up the refrigerator here and it used to be that you'd see three or four different beers. Now you see one because Mm. there's cider, there's kombucha, there's whatever else in there. But I think there are a lot of parallels between the, you know, sort of the doomsayers of the mid-90s as, sure. and, and now as well, which is one reason, I don't know. I mean, we've heard this all before, you know, from the very beginning, the business pages wanted to say that, wanted to label craft brewing a, as a fad sure. and, and say, you know, we were right. It didn't last long. They're still saying that. And, you know, it's just part of the landscape. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's definitely like always been a little bit of a... um Reactionary or reflexive, sort of impulsive push against craft brewing, as you know, this is a little bit more of a pipe dream, these you know, sort of wide eyed dreamers type of thing. You can't fight the gravity of commodity. And I think that certainly that is seductive to it. The business page of like the regional newspaper, whoever's doing the reporting there, I think that's an attractive narrative to sort of frame up because it feels contrarian in a way that you know, the mainstream readership sort of may appreciate. Though, if you understood the industry, you would realize that you know that's actually quite quite conformist of a perspective. But yeah, no uh, point noted. Yeah,
1: yeah, predictions are generally based on the immediate past. You know, right. you look at the predictions for how baseball is going to shake out every year and pretty much people say without actually saying this, they say, oh, it's going to be exactly like last year. Right, right. It's the easy thing to predict.
0: Well, we were talking about baseball here on Taplines just a few episodes ago because we were talking about the somewhat surprise acquisition uh, that Tilray Brands, the cannabis giant, made uh, of a bunch of Anheuser-Busch InBev's. Craft Brewing portfolio, and my guest at the time, Tim McCurdy's, uh, excuse me, Vine Pair's managing editor, Tim McCurdy, um, drew the parallel to Moneyball, where, you know, maybe there's a case to be made that Tilray is, you know, picking up these brands at bargain basement prices, quote unquote, and can get a little bit more value out of them by tweaking, you know, their operations or their positioning or whatever. But one of I think the interesting things, and this is a segue into our conversation about, you know, Anheuser-Busch InBev's relationship with Elysian and relationship to the extent that it existed with you uh, back in, in, you know, the mid uh, last decade. Um, Anheuser-Busch InBev had until, you know, what, two weeks ago in 2023, had uh, almost double the number of craft breweries under its portfolio um, that it does now or that it will once the Tilray deal is closed. Elysian was not included in that sell-off of Anheuser-Busch's craft brands. I think it was seven total plus a energy drink brand that they had discontinued already, so head scratcher there. But I think the baseball or the moneyball analogy is maybe imperfect, but kind of interesting because one of the brands that Anheuser-Busch InBev wound up keeping, obviously, was was Elysian. And, you know, you look at Elysian's performance as a brand under the AB InBev, you know, Aegis, and they have had some success with some of the the portfolio. One of the things I think that is worth sort of picking at or picking into is how... Anheuser-Busch InBev sort of came to be interested in, you know, what I think is fair to call a heavy hitter like Elysian in the first place. And that, I think, you know, a little bit of a ham-fisted segue, but you're being gracious and letting me uh, stumble through it here, Dick. Thank you. That, I think, is a good enough uh, good enough opportunity to scroll the Tap Lines time machine back to, to mid-last decade, to, to 2014, 2015, um, and sort of get into... What you and your fellow you know, co-founders, your, your team at Elysian, um, what the landscape looked like for, for the business uh, pre-Anheuser-Busch uh, InBev interest.
1: Well, I mean, we were certainly on an upsurge. We'd had our production brewery going for, oh, I don't know, close to, two, well, no, how long? Oh, a few, three, four years, something like that. And so, you know, our numbers were growing, you know, I can see why we could be, you know, an attractive uh, possibility for acquisition. Mm. Um, you know, and we've been fortunate to be able to brew our beer on on a larger scale with in partnership with New Belgium. Mm. Uh, you know, so we were able to increase some of our numbers without having to make an enormous financial outlay. So, you know, we were looking pretty good, but we weren't, as established as some other brand so we were probably you know they probably figured we'd be you know could get us at a decent price and it was a decent price mm. um but you know there was a lot of that we did wrong in the course of all that kind of stuff but that's a that's another subject
0: do you remember what uh, roughly like what barrelage you were at in 2014 2015ish
1: was it 60,000 something like that yeah some in the neighborhood there yeah okay Something like that. Yeah, yeah. And we were already in an AB house locally in mm-hmm. terms of distribution. Mm-hmm. So there were some things that were that made it kind of easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, within our company, it was not particularly easy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, understood. Uh, what was the landscape like for listeners who have come to craft brewing, you know, in late last decade or even early this decade? Um, I think it might be worthwhile to speak just briefly, if you wouldn't mind, to what the, you know, quote-unquote vibe was like with regards to sales, acquisitions, um, big strategic partners, quote-unquote, coming in and buying up uh, uh, craft breweries. That, vibe seems to as someone I've been covering the industry for about a decade, not I'm not as uh, I haven't had as much experience with it as you, but I've been around for a little while. And that vibe to me seems to have shifted quite a bit, even since 2015. But can you characterize a little bit sort of how you guys at Elysian and how your peers throughout the industry were thinking about acquisitions and and about uh, sales at that time?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, there was a there was definitely an onus, you know, there was a sort of a, you know, A brewery that consented to sell to a large entity like that was pretty quickly viewed as a pariah. Mm. And you know, I I was also I also happened to be on the Brewers Association board of directors. You know, I wasn't on it at the time of the sale, but I had been for several years from the from about 2007 to you know 2000. 13, 14, something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can't, you know, go into specifics about things that we discussed on the board, but, you know, a great premium was placed on independence. Yep. And I honestly, I think to to go back, I think there some decisions were possibly made a little hastily industry-wide about how to view that kind of thing and how to demonize, you know, breweries that did sell. Sure. And I think a lot of people were left... In a, in a sort of an awkward position, and they continue to be. You know, I worry a lot about some of my friends who have been in the industry for two or three decades and aren't necessarily on a track to realize anything from what they've created. Mm. So, you know, in some ways, that answered, that anticipated some of what was going to happen in the future. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there was definitely a, a negative connotation for a brewery that was willing to sell to one of the big boys.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there was... Even despite those negative connotations, we were, in hindsight, we were about halfway through what would prove—in 2015, we were about halfway through what would prove to be a almost decade-long buying spree that—or, you know, feeding frenzy, if you want to call it um, that—prosecuted by— all of the macro brewers, but especially by Anheuser-Busch InBev. I mean, you you certainly saw Molson Coors uh, getting you know involved in acquiring some breweries. They've acquired Terrapin, uh, Hop Valley, a few others um, over the years. Uh, revolver in Texas. Uh, Constellation, of course, um, sort of uh, infamously <laughs> acquires Ballast Point for a billion dollars with a B, um, which would you know, basically immediately be shown to be a, just a tremendously inflated price. Um, Heineken has, at that point, 50% of Lagunitas and would later acquire the other chunk uh, of the, of that brewery. But Anheuser Busch InBev was on the biggest tear. I mean, they're the biggest player, and they and they came heaviest into the space. Um, they had been dilly dallying around to some extent, flirting with it. Uh, with the craft, what we now know as the Craft Brewers Alliance, um, which it now wholly owns in 2023, but at the time had a had a stake in, and that was Red Hook and Widmer and a few others. But in 2011, they acquire the outstanding minority share that they didn't already own of Goose Island, and then they were off to the races uh, and and would pick up. Um, ultimately I think nine or 10 craft breweries and maybe a cidery here or there, um, over the, over the nine years, Elysian arrives sort of at, not quite the midpoint, but close. And so already there's sort of, I think if I'm thinking back to it at the time, having sort of lived through it, there's already sort of a mounting anxiety about what ABI's intentions for the segment are, right? You start to see them make these moves. It is not just a one and done acquisition that makes sense because it's already aligned, blah, blah, blah. They're making regional decisions. Um, can you speak a little bit to pre, you know, Elysian being acquired? Can you speak a little bit to how you perceived their designs on the segment?
1: Well, I think they, they just didn't want to be left out. Mm. <laughs> they also, I think, wanted to be able to bulk up tap lineups You know, if you walk into an airport bar and and they've only got three taps, well, that's not really dominance. So if they can pick up a bunch of other brands, they can cram places like that and crowd out the competition. I yep. think that was a lot of it, yep. even if many of the brands didn't amount to a great deal in terms of barrelage or overall Volume, sales. yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and I think, you know, they just didn't want to be perceived as uh, being totally stuck at the mud in terms of just being those big brands. Yeah. And, you know, as we saw as that ad aired, you know, that they wanted to muddy the waters a little bit. They wanted to confuse people. You know, what was craft You yep. know, they... they, they wanted to be able to own a part of that too.
0: Yep. Yeah. That's a really good point. Like there was this sort of, and we've had others on the show who have talked about this and Nat Barron, uh, who was doing Mike's hard lemonade, but then went on to make the movie beer wars, uh, the documentary beer wars. Uh, we had, um, just actually an episode that is airing as we speak, uh, Edmundo Macias who worked on Takiza, which was anheuser Bush's Corona killer back in 1996. They, they you know, ABIs, or ABs, and then ABIs after it, uh, strategy with regards to upstart segments like this it follows a playbook. Marine Ogle broke it down for us uh, in another episode um, where, you know, it's sort of, they try to ignore it at first and freeze it out. Then, you know, maybe they try to clone it. Uh, and they, they, I think ABI had, or AB, excuse me, had like Pacific Ridge and like Ziegenbach. They had a bunch of like very transparently like ripoff, Type, you know, uh, uh, brands to compete with the Sierra Nevadas and the Shiner Box of the world. Um, Although the Faust was
1: a good beer. Faust
0: was a great beer. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I mean, to their limited credit, of course, we have to we have to be fair here on Tap Lines. They they put put out some decent stuff, you know, Um, even even in that test, you know, the uh, Skunk Works brewery that they were sort of spinning up in-house to try to clone, you know, craft brewing and uh, sort of blunt the momentum. I mean, that was run, if I'm not mistaken, by Mitch Steele, who would later go on uh, to and still continues to have a, a, a fantastic career as a, as a craft brewer. So it's not it's not for lack of skill uh, that. Oh,
1: absolutely not. That
0: they, but there was something about craft brewing, whether it was the outsider or uh, sort of ethos or the genuine sort of artisanal approach that characterized, um, you know, the you know procurement and production methods that was just kind of anathema to what Anheuser Bush and then Anheuser busch Inbev after it. Uh, that's not the game that they played, and they just were never able to quite figure out how to spin that up in house. So then. That's the third step that Marine Ogle would describe and many others have as well about uh, their strategy. They just they just start buying in. Right. So they were worried about missing out. Craft brewing has all the growth in the U.S. craft beer industry at that time. It's where, you know, everyone was saying 20 percent of the market by 2020. Um, everyone's very excited about that. Right. And it's it's uh, and they couldn't figure out how to kill it. They couldn't figure out how to clone it. So they just started buying in. Um, fear of being left out. I think that's interesting, and, and definitely tracks with what I remember about uh, sort of their strategy at the time. So, Dick, tell us a little bit about. You know, you're at around sixty thousand barrels. Uh, you're you've got some you know capacity that's being bre- some volume that's being brewed from New Belgium, Elysian, As we head into 20, or head in you know finish up twenty fourteen and head into twenty fifteen. That's right around when this conversation with anheuser Bush InBev sort of emerges and becomes really serious, right? Can you give us the TikTok on how sort of this comes to be?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I had been, you know, had been judging some of the major competitions since the mid-90s. Mm. And it was at one of the judges' gatherings that an, a guy from AB, with whom I, you know, whom, with whom I judged many times, you know, just approached me and sort of tested the waters and said, would, be, would we be willing to have a conversation about, you know, whatever. And, you know, of course, I knew what he was talking about. Mm. And, you know, my heart sank. I really wasn't interested in furthering any discussions like that. But I'm only one guy. I have two partners. We had 28 other owners. And, uh, you know, I had to bring the news back and tell my partners that this conversation had occurred. I assumed that they they also would not be interested. But they both were in a big way. I mean, Mm. literally, I saw the look that passed between them right in that instant. And, you know, they were like, we're doing this. So that's how that got underway. And, uh, you know, honestly, as the negotiations went on, I found myself, you know, AB behaved perfectly perfectly you know, honorably through all the negotiations and all that kind of stuff. In fact, I kind of uh, identified it with Stockholm Syndrome. I started to identify more with my captors than with, my, with the people that I had been partners with for nearly 20 <laughs> years already. Oh, geez. Uh, that was the difficult part, was that I felt like that was such an ugly episode just in terms of partner relations and all that stuff. But I've said many times that three is an awkward number for a partnership, and we had all had our turn as the outman. And that was mine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when does the deal finally go through?
1: Well, I mean, we announced it in January, I think January 21st 2015. of yeah. 2015. But of course, the whole thing had been in the works for a while. You know, that initial conversation happened in connection with the World Beer Cup, which happens in late spring. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it had been several months in the making.
0: Did you understand at the time, did AB, when they came in and pitched you, you know, and you and your partners, like, was there. A set strategy for what they wanted Elysian Brewing to be in their portfolio, or was it just, "Hey, we love the brand; we'd love it to be a par-. like"? In other words, how far did you get the sense that they had thought out the strategy there?
1: Well, yeah, that's a good question because, you know, ultimately I think it did turn out that they liked the brand and they liked the fact that we were on a growth trajectory and all that stuff. But one thing that did present kind of a challenge to them was that we were primarily a pub company. Mm. You know, we had the production brewery, yes, and we were expanding our distribution in in several states, uh, more than several but, um, you know, it, we were we had four restaurants and that for them, that was a little bit awkward. That, and that that made I think that made some of the negotiations stretch on just a bit because, you know, there were there were different metrics for measuring the price and all that kind of thing. Uh, of course, Ten Barrel was the one right before us. And they also had a couple of, uh, you know, retail outlets, but they were they were much more of a production brewery. Yeah. And so and s- by the time we were acquired, we were two But but, you know, we were a hybrid. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So
0: the deal gets announced January 21st, 2015, and, you know, appreciate you being a good sport and talking through what I'm sure is not a pleasant bit of history, but I think our listeners will really appreciate fine. It. <laughs> Yeah, good. I, well, you look fine. I just wanted to say that we do appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners do too, because uh, this, you know, this backstory is, I think, very germane to the moment that we have now arrived at, uh, which is... In February 2015, we have the Super Bowl. Um, of course, every year, huge uh, beer commercial opportunity. It's always been the purview of macro brewers in general, not craft brewers, and more specifically in Bev ABI, excuse me, which uh, at that point had still sort of retained the exclusivity arrangement that it had over national Super Bowl air. Um, it held that for 30 years. It just last year, 2022, finally gave that up. So. You know that the Super Bowl is going to be a major, uh, a major sort of beer advertising event. Everyone, even as a consumer, is familiar with waiting to see the Bud Light and the and the Budweiser ads. A lot of those are indelible, you know, sort of strands in the cultural fabric uh, that media is. I think you know means a lot to a lot of people for better or worse, uh, and people really look forward to that. So you. I'm sure, had sort of an awareness that you were, when you were going to watch the Super Bowl in 2015, you were going to see a bunch of. Bud Light and Budweiser ads, right? And that
1: plus the Seahawks were playing.
0: Plus the Seahawks were playing. That's right. Twelfth man, man. You got. You know, this was. Uh, that's right. Oh man, I forgot when we when I interviewed you. I last interviewed you about this about four years ago, five years ago at this point. And yeah, that's right. You you made a point of mentioning that. Did they win that game or they lose that game? I forget. Oh no,
1: they lost. Oh, they, they had won the previous year. They were on the march to win, and then uh, uh, Russell Wilson threw an interception to the Patriots, oh, the pretty much on the goal line, and yes. that, and that did it. But by the time that happened, uh, you know, we were in my, you know, we had a viewing party at one of my brewers' houses. Yeah. Uh, and so it was a whole, you know, the the whole marketing, the whole brewing crew. I mean, there were a lot of Elysian folks there, not my former partners. Uh, but uh, we were all in such shock in the wake of the ad that you're about to describe that the outcome of the game was almost secondary.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, that, not a fun night for you. Yeah. So the The ad that we're here, you know, sort of the the turning point of this episode and the turning point, I think, for uh, a lot of both industry folks and rank and file consumers about their maybe if their views hadn't hardened on ABI with regards to its relationship to the craft brewing segment, I think that was a turning point for a lot of people. Where it's like, okay, like this is a little bit of us versus them. The the ad that we're here to discuss uh, is called Brewed the Hard Way. It airs in the third quarter. Um, It for those who haven't seen it. Um, it, the, the main thrust of it is that, uh, Budweiser, uh, you know, is quote unquote, proudly a macro beer here. I'm going to, I'll give you the first stanza here, a little bit of beat poetry here on tap lines, uh, proudly, and here, this is the quote, proudly a macro beer. It's not brewed to be fussed over. It's brewed for a crisp, smooth finish. This is the only beer Beechwood aged since 1876. There's only one Budweiser. So that's the, that's some of the copy that would appear on the screen. You've got the, the, um, there's drums sort of thumping in the background. It's a very, uh, the, the vibe is very beat your chest. Um, you know, sort of, uh, red meat for, uh, the, you know, middle America base that I think Budweiser as a brand thought it was still playing to at the time. And, that's all well and good. I mean, obviously that first stanza, you know, it sort of defines itself as in opposition to craft beer. You hear some of the, you know, sort of uh, insinuation there. It's not brewed to be fussed over, um, you know. Uh, but the part that I think really would cement this as a shot across the bow of craft brewing as an industry Oh, uh,
1: I, would, I would say it was amidships. It wasn't just across the bow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Thank you. Uh, better analogy there. Good. I'm, you've got your seafaring terminology a little bit more dialed in than I do. Yeah, sure. It's uh, squarely on target um, was uh, the stanza that came next. So I'm going to quote again here. It's a quote. It's brewed for drinking, not dissecting. The people who drink our beer are people who like to drink beer. Brewed the hard way let them sip their pumpkin peach ale. We'll be brewing us some golden suds. This is the famous Budweiser beer. This Bud's for you. So, in the second turn there, then that's the full, you know, copy of the commercial. In the second turn there, you see that sort of accelerated, more adversarial uh, swipe at the craft brewing industry in general, but what some people may not know, and of course, it would be publicized after the fact. But if, if you know, depending on where our listeners are in their craft beer journey, they may not be aware of this. Uh, this was kind of a, a specific shot, either inadvertent or not.
1: We made a pumpkin peach ale.
0: Exactly, Elysian made a pumpkin peach ale. You had that in your portfolio. Anheuser Bush had, InBev had just bought Elysian, and. Their flagship, not flagship anymore, but their most important beer, you know, Budweiser, in terms of its cultural relevance, um, even though it no longer at that point sold you know, the type of volume that Bud Light did, is on national air, the most valuable advertising air in the country, if not the world, calling out by style and almost by name the, the product that its own recently acquired asset produces. That had to feel terrible.
1: Oh, it was terrible. The air went out of the room as soon as it ran because they knew exactly who they were shooting. The people that I was hanging out with knew exactly who they were firing at. They were They were putting their foot on our necks. Mm. They were taunting us for just having been acquired. They were making a great deal of the fact that they could go out and get whatever they wanted and send the message out to people and they you know you you didn't really get into what the imagery was but there was a oh, there was yeah. a hipster with a cur- curled up curled mustache, up mustache. Yeah, bas- yeah. basically holding up his pinky as he as he sipped a beer out of a wine glass right. so there was a lot they were trying to foster a lot of class anger and a lot of class warfare between you know their the brand that they that that ad was supposed to be uh, you know, furthering, and not mentioning, of course, that they were busy acquiring craft beers. But, you know, they they were like, they, it was like they were beating up their brother in the park. You mm. know? It's like, I mean, there were many layers to it. There was, there was the joke of, you know, the hidden pumpkin peach ale thing. There was the... um the taunting us for having been proudly independent and then acquired. Mm-hmm. There was a lot going on there. Yeah. And, you know, I don't take any particular pleasure in the, in the culture warfare that they have t- sort of taken it on the chin recently with regard to Bud Light. Sure. Because I think that's a, that's a defeat for freedom and all that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that they were willing to sort of open that up.
0: Yeah, you mentioned – it's funny that you mentioned the idea of sort of class war and playing on class anxiety because I think that that is core to uh, – and you said that, again, five years ago, last time we talked about this. You said something very similar. It's like the, it, It's like you're fostering class war. They had gone out and drawn a line in the sand with this advertisement um, that, you know, there's an us and there's a them, um, unbeknownst to the casual viewer of the Super Bowl commercial – Anheuser-Busch is playing both ends against the middle. They own both Budweiser and craft breweries, including one that makes a, a pumpkin peach ale. And the benefit for a company like that, if you want to run the calculus on it, is that you either steer people back towards sort of that... You know, with with that faux populist sort of uh, chest beating exercise that brewed the hard way was, you either steer them back towards the Budweiser's and the Bud Lights of the world because they that customer doesn't want to identify with the frou-frou, the effete, elite, coastal, you know, uh, gentrification, uh, uh, conspicuous consumption of craft brewing, or... Uh, if they say, hey, screw that, like, I'm not, I'm not going to play into this. I'm still going to enjoy craft beer. Well, guess what? Now, ABI is building a portfolio that will go capture a lot of their dollars of of that of that consumer that you know is is turned off by that ad. So they're they're playing both ends against the middle and if it works out well, which it does to some extent. I mean, I don't this this did not correspond with any dramatic uptick in in you know Budweiser consumption. Uh, Budweiser's been sliding since 1988 when it ceded the crown to Bud Light, but it certainly established a new Sort of set of stakes on the battlefield, maybe, is is a way to put it, or like it seemed to clarify or crystallize to me, and I think to, to other observers, where the company was going to sort of steer itself in, you know, its relationship to craft brewing. What did it? it we've talked about the text, uh, so to speak, you know, the 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 imagery and the in the actual content of the ad itself. The subtext very clear, uh, but. Zoom out a little bit and and do the super text for me. Do the, you know, the 10,000 foot view. What did it tell you about what Anheuser-Busch InBev uh, intended to do in the craft brewing segment?
1: <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, sort of parenthetically, as a little bit of a footnote, the same person who had approached me, uh, initially at that judges' gathering, was the one who came up with the idea to twit us about the pumpkin peach ale. Ugh. You know, he just thought it was a funny little thing. I think he thought I would think it was funny. Yeah. I think he was presuming a great deal. Uh. And I haven't really had the opportunity to tell it, to ask him not to do me any more favors. <laughs> but, um, you know, <laughs> there is that. I, I don't know what their what their larger strategy was. I mean they they continued to acquire other breweries, some of which were head scratchers, some of which just sort of made sense in yep. terms of being strong brands and all that kind of stuff and It's interesting to look at the the recent divestiture by them. you know I'm guessing that they that they took that energy drink and so that they could get 10 barrel mm. you know because ten barrel's a quality property um but anyway, I don't know. You know, I as far as what their larger strategy was, you know, they, they just, they, they do a lot of scattershot stuff. And that was just something that they thought was kind of funny uh, that could, could you know, sort of give Kraft a little bit of a slap in the face and, and move on from there. Yeah. I, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, maybe, fair enough. It maybe it's not anything to read into the tea leaves there. Besides, this is one brand. They have three dozen brands and they're going to, you know, those are going to manifest in different ways uh, when they put them out in the marketplace. And that's the way they chose to manifest it. Dick, what happens, you know, uh, afterwards? Obviously, the Seahawks lose. Everyone is not having a good time. In the immediate aftermath of the, the commercial airing, did you guys have, uh, you or your co-founders or your, your uh, team at uh, Elysian, was there dialogue over this with your points of contact at ABI? I mean, this was very fresh. Like I assume there were ABI people coming to the brewery.
1: There were, there were ABI people right then and right there. You know, we had a meeting the next morning just to sort of take the next steps and all that kind of stuff. And there was one of the pretty high up AB guys there at the meeting and both of my former partners totally downplayed it. They were like, one of them kind of thought it was funny, but you know, there's a subtext there too. Mm. I think he kind of enjoyed sticking a thumb in Craft's eye by by making sure that the sale went through. And the other one just sort of said, oh, it wasn't that bad. Mm. It was kind of funny. To which I said, it was egregious. Mm. You know, and I looked at the A.B. guy. And he was not, he was not like, taking a, a heavy line on it either. Uh, as I said, they, they behaved like gentle people in the course of the negotiations. Uh, I didn't really have that much of a beef with them. You know who they are. You know, there's that old Al Wilson song, The Snake. You know about the woman who takes in the snake, and the snake eventually bites her and kills her. Yeah, you yeah. know that you know AB is the snake. They're yeah. going to do that. This
0: is their nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, of, of course, that guy, whoever it was, the AB person, did not themselves like sign off on the commercial. Presumably, it's of a different part not. of the business. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So that sort of is salt in the wound, or you know, twisting the knife uh, amongst those uh, at Elysian who were you know upset about the sale. Um one of the things that you told me many years ago when we spoke about this for a different story um that has stuck with me ever since it's one of the funniest uh, funny is maybe not the right word but it is a very poignant way of describing uh and sort of encapsulating the local reaction or the drinker reaction oh, to yeah. you told me a story about how in the aftermath of the sale in Seattle you had what You refer to as, quote, hate tourists, uh, (laughs) which is an all time phrase, by the way, uh, who were showing up at Elysian properties and uh, and like dumping beers out to show how discontent they were, how angry they were about the sale. Can you tell us a little bit about the the local reaction to the sale? And they mean aftermath?
1: There was that. I mean, I don't know how many people did that. I only heard of one actual what instance where many. a guy ordered a beer, yeah. paid for it, and dumped it on the bar and walked out. Sociopathic you know, there was a great deal behavior. of, yeah. there was a great deal of uh, vituperation in the wake of it. And, you know, there are a couple of ways to look at that. One is like, oh, that sucks. That feels terrible. You know, in, other, in a way, it's an expression of love for what we had created and, mm. and their appreciation. They were heartbroken. Mm. They were upset, as we were you know when the, when we had the announcement company wide you know there were there were there were dozens of people including me crying on the floor mm. you know so it was it was hard on us and i felt bad for the servers the bartenders who had to bear the brunt of all that sure you know the three of us who had who had been privy to the sale going into it. We weren't the ones who had to take take the heat. Yeah, they were. Yeah, and they didn't deserve it.
0: And they had nothing to do with it, obviously. I mean, you're talking about no. yeah, yeah, shift employees who are uh, yeah. just man in the man in the stick or whatever. Yeah, that's uh, and that I think I, I again, it's a incredibly sort of poignant and obviously very emotional version. of, Uh, of what I think was going on in the industry uh, all over the place. At that time, there was just this real sort of seething fury um, and there was nowhere to put it. And then within
1: a few years, nobody cared.
0: Nobody cared. By the end of, when do you think it stopped? (laughs) I don't know. People were still mad about Wicked Weed in 2017. People were still mad about that.
1: Right. Well, that was a big, that was a big one, you know, because, you know, kind of the way You know, Tony at Lagunitas had said he would rather tear his eyes out than sell to a large brewer. The, You know, those two guys at Wicked Weed were pretty vocal about being independent and being anti this and that. But in fairness to them, they didn't control all that much of the company. Mm -hmm. So they weren't really the ones who made the decision.
0: Yeah, yeah. So people were still, maybe, there was still that sort of seething id amongst craft brewing enthusiasts. You know, rank-and-file drinkers, I think, had really at... The end of the the aughts and into you know the early portion of last decade, rank and file drinkers had really started to resonate with and and I think internalize and believe genuinely believe this idea that there was a David and Goliath us versus them you know quote unquote revolution that was happening, um, and that drinking craft beer was participating in. Um, you know, a, a form of a politics, right? Like there's not Democrat versus Republican, more along the lines of these are choices that I'm making about, you know, uh, my, you know, buying things locally about, you know, not participating in sort of corporate commoditization of, of culture and of community. Um, these are, these are, you know, this is a way to do it. And, and the product came to represent so, so many of those sort of uh, mores or ethos to so many people that people were felt spurned felt burned they were showing up at, someone showed up at a lesion, bought a pint and dumped it out but to your point it ends at some point and towards the end of last decade and certainly this decade there is a much more muted response or a more honestly even to some extent people are just kind of happy to see industry veterans find an exit uh, that uh, that is, you know, rewarding them for what they've built. I mean, I'm thinking specifically at this point of Larry Bell selling bells uh, to, quote unquote, to New Belgium, but ultimately to uh, Lion Little World, Little Lion World, Lion Little World uh, and Kieran. Um, and most people were just like, I, I mean, I remember reporting on it at the time. Most people were just like, good, he deserves it, man. Like he this is, you know, he's not going to do this forever. I'm glad that he he found a way out. I'm curious, the question in here you've been patiently waiting for, sorry, Dick, is uh, when you view that versus sort of what you witnessed in the immediate aftermath of the sale to Elysian um, and sort of that was exacerbated by that commercial, um, what does that delta between the reaction now versus the reaction then tell you about how the craft brewing industry has evolved?
1: Well, there's, I, you know, you have to think that there's kind of an inevitability to it. Mm. I mean, the craft brewing movement has been around now for, gosh, going on 50 years. Sure. And, you know, it's just going to, there are going to be ups and downs, ebbs and flows, whatever, you know, different differences in perception. Uh, you know, it's brand new, then it's not brand new anymore, then it stales a little bit, then it revives. I mean, there, it's been through a lot. So none of this is all that surprising. You know, and I, and I as I sort of said before, I think that... The craft powers that be, the Brewers Association in particular, could have done a better job of not drawing such sharp lines with regard to dividing, you know, who's in and who's out, that yeah. kind of thing. I think it's made it difficult for people as time goes on. You know, it made it difficult for people who, who sold at the time that we did, you know, to take that kind of heat that you've just described. Uh, and then, you know, later on, there wasn't as much. Uh, But I think, as I said before, I'm concerned that a lot of people are going to be having been told so in in no uncertain terms that it's a bad thing to sell. I think there are a lot of people who won't ultimately be able to, mm. you know. And one thing I, I judge around the world—I've judged a lot in South America and in Australia, Europe, wherever—and I've given talks in over the last few years in which I hold up the example of the craft brewing industry in the U.S. and I say we did a lot of things right, but we did some things wrong too. Mm. And so as their scenes in Brazil and Argentina and Chile and elsewhere are developing, I'm trying to give them a little bit of an overview of some of the things that they might consider as their movement matures by not drawing lines quite so sharply. Mm. You know, one line I use repeatedly is, don't look for enemies among your friends.
0: I love that, man. That's, that's good advice for life. Not just a craft brewing industry, but in general. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? Like there's, and I think like to some extent you see that map on to, or you certainly see parallels in like actual political movements that aren't organized around consumable products, but are organized around ideas. There is this concept of sort of purity tests that um you know the, I think like the global left has always struggled with more than the global right where it's like yeah. um you know okay well I'm a I'm a democratic socialist. Well I'm I'm more of a, a traditional socialist. It's like, well guess what man? Like you're both socialists and there's not that many of you. You should probably like worry about all the people who don't want you to take power before you worry about the little discrepancies between the way you guys right. Fr- <laughs>
1: yeah. Freud called it the narcissism of difference. Right. You know that by that you concentrate, you know the, you find greater difference between entities that are much more strongly aligned than you do between ones that are much more opposed. Sure,
0: sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And of course, you know, it's easier. How can you ever critique, hope to critique in a meaningful way, uh, you know, or bring about change to the commodity system? Well, you can't. But what you can do is lean on. You know, your buddy that also runs a 10 or 20 barrel brew house down the road who uh, is maybe using hop extract for some stuff that you really, you know, you would have gone with fresh hops for, you know.
1: <laughs> hop. like There's nothing wrong with hop Not extract. Right.
0: Agreed. You it's know, our official. We made
1: another IPA <laughs> called Day Glow. Yeah. And I remember telling people at a, at one of the Washington Brewers Guild meetings that that, was, that beer was highly reliant on hop extract. And there were gasps. But then people were like, but I really like it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: There is no shame in that. No. And there are all sorts of, we don't need, we're not talking about hot products today, but there's a <laughs> lot. There, there's a lot there.
0: Very good. Very good. Well, Dick, thank you so much for coming on Taplines. I think like by way of sort of wrapping it up, uh, I do want to return to the commercial for one moment. Um, you know, like I said, this was uh third quarter of Super Bowl 2015. Um, the pumpkin peach ale, of course, was the sort of lousiest and most direct attack. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about that commercial is knowing what you know now about sort of, and you sort of flick to this earlier in the conversation, knowing what you know now about how AB InBev has, um, you know, sort of moved through the American marketplace, not only with its craft portfolio, which we've discussed, but also with its flagship and Bud Light and and certainly Budweiser, which again is culturally relevant, if not really relevant, you know, as much from a volume perspective. How do you view that commercial in hindsight? Like, does it feel as much like a sort of position of strength? Or in hindsight, does that speak to sort of a, a last gasp Desperation, weakness, type of thing. I'm curious if you have any perspective on that, and you know, eight years later.
1: Well, to me, it's a it's a backhanded compliment. Mm. You know, how many people can say that they were singled out, however obscurely, in a Super Bowl ad?
0: Yeah, subtweeted. Yeah, more. That's <laughs> yeah. what that's what it's called.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and they weren't quite done with that either, because there's another brewery whose name I'm not going to mention uh, that make that's well known for making a watermelon wheat beer. Mm. And, you know, they were they were approached as well and spurned AB. And then they ran an ad saying nobody thanks the guy who brings the watermelon wheat beer. Mm. So, you know, they 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 had their they had their knives out. Yeah, they did. And that's that's troubling. But it's all done now. I've moved on. I'm homebrewing.
0: Yeah. What are you up to these days?
1: <laughs> well, Kim and I have uh, some property in Western Sonoma County. We built a house and a barn that we've been, we've been living in the house for a few months now. The barn has a sweet little one-barrel brewery cool. and my plan, and which I've started to implement, Uh, is to have some of my illustrious uh, brewing colleagues come brew with me there. Oh, man. So we've done that so far. Vinny Chilurzo was my first assistant brewer. No kidding. Sean O'Sullivan was another. And uh, my brother, who's a maniacal home brewer, was the third. So I'm just getting started with that. Oh, that is. That's that's the idea, just for fun. That is. No more licenses. (laughs) And this is the last brewery I'll buy.
0: Well, you deserve it. Uh, a long and illustrious career. Dick Cantwell, thank you so much for joining us on Taplines, taking us uh, down memory lane. No matter how uh, happy or sad the memories were, we are glad that you were here uh, to, to talk about this important piece of, uh, of craft brewing history. Dick, thanks so much for coming.
1: Sure, my pleasure.
0: All right, take care. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, managing editor Tim McCurdy, and art director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you, listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.